Hello again, and welcome to the Planet Beyond podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in delivering geodata, and hosted by me, John Baston Pitt. In this episode, we will be talking to Professor George Yip about a life lived in and spent studying global business. His seminal work, Total Global Strategy, first published in 1992, outlined four key drivers of global trade. He spent as much of his career in the boardroom as in academia. Most recently, he has turned his attention to innovation in China. In this episode, we will look at the lessons he's learned over decades of academic research and business leadership, We want to to better understand China's journey, how it's got to where it is today. What does does leadership look like in China? And and hear his thoughts about what appears to be the, the magic of China's innovation process. George, welcome to the Planet Beyond podcast. Oh, John, thank you. Maybe we can kick off with just a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your journey, Well, my journey is really quite complicated. I started my life in Hong Kong, and uh, but early on, my parents spent uh, two or three years in what was called Burma back then. So um, when I was about three, four, five, I lived there, and then went back to Hong Kong at the age of six for four more years before most of my family moved to England at the age of 10, and we moved to a very small town in Sussex. Actually, it's the first and only non-white family in 1957, which was an interesting experience in itself. A year at a local convent school, then three years in a grammar school, then four and a half years in a classic British boarding school, almost like Tom Brown's school days, although I enjoyed that very much. And from there, I managed to get into uh, Modern College, Cambridge, where I studied economics and law. And my career began by working for four years for Unilever in consumer marketing and advertising. And then I started to get an MBA of the one year at Cranfield School of Management in England, transferring to the second year at Harvard Business School. And so in fact, on my first day at Cranfield School of Management, I thought I really want to be on the other side and be you know, lecturing to the students. And I particularly love the case method. You came to that conclusion after the first day? Yeah, on the first day. A bit, bit arrogant, I suppose. It was partly... I, I thought I can do a better job than this lecturer. Well, maybe it shows ambition. Yeah, it was actually in the first class. It was actually, well, the first class was marketing and I had four years marketing experience. I thought, I know a lot about this. But I'd also had um, quite a bit of experience of public speaking, debating in in school and giving presentations in my early career. Uh, After I went to Harvard Business School, I decided to get the MBA, I decided to get a doctorate. And I was very fortunate then because I spotted um, a mid-level professor who was not yet tenured, not yet famous, but he was doing something very unusual in his methodology, which combined industrial organization, economics, and strategy. The the old Harvard approach to strategy was very sort of um, individualistic, you know, that they said, Everything depends on the situation. Whereas this professor took a more systematic approach and said there are frameworks, 
that you can use to come up with a more quantitative and predictive approach to strategy. And I've even advised not to, by a senior professor, not to study under him if I wanted to get a position at Harvard Business School. And this unknown professor was Michael Porter, who became the most famous uh, business school professor of all time. And you then went on to work with him, the Michael Porter. I was very lucky to be, that he took me on as his second doctorate student. And indeed, my thesis was on one of, was on one of his five forces, which he was working on uh, while he was supervising me. And in fact, I finished my thesis at the same time as he finished his first book, Competitive Strategy. And that really gave me a boost in my career. And so I was able to join the um, faculty at Harvard Business School, actually in the marketing department, taught three years. But then I sort of got a bit disenchanted because the field was becoming a bit academic. And I worked and in, moved into management consulting for four years. And it was in management consulting toward the end that I discovered what I thought was an underexploited topic, which was global strategy. And again, that was sort of the icebreaker was an article published again by Michael Porter. Uh, and the difference there was that whereas international business had always been about what's different about countries. And in fact, being international, so to speak, many people have said to me, why don't you study international business? I resisted it because I wasn't interested in focusing on the differences between countries. And again, Michael Porter introduced the idea that you should instead look for commonalities within an industry. So if you take a given industry like automotive or semiconductors, there are a lot of commonalities across countries in those industries. So I picked that up and that paid off because I published that book in 1992. And as it turned out, uh, globalization was the hot topic of the 90s and it was written for managers explicitly. Um, and I developed my own framework with the four sets of drivers, uh, market drivers, cost drivers, government drivers, and competitive drivers. You say you weren't interested in the differences between countries, but, but you did, in later years, go on, go on to focus on China. Why was that? When I was doing teaching international business and doing work on global strategy, I'd done a bit on China. And in fact, in the mid-90s, I had been a visiting professor at the new, first new Western-style business school in China, China-Europe, international business school set up as a joint venture between the European Union and China. My career after passing through um, being a professor at the University of Cambridge, professor at London Business School where I headed the MBA, I decided to try leaving academia and I was headhunted for a job for two years as vice president of research and innovation at Capgemini Consulting in London. I became Dean of Rotterdam School of Management for three and a half years. When I was retiring from that in 2011, I was young enough to still do some other things. I thought, what do I want to do? And I was given advice by a, a Dutch colleague, actually a friend, who said, why don't you do something with China? So I contacted China Europe International Business School. And what happened then? As it turned out, the Dean then was John Quelch, whom I'd worked with at Harvard Business School, and then he'd been the dean at um, London Business School. He's a brilliant dean. And he said to me, well, here's a coincidence, George. It so happens we've just got a lot of money from four Dutch multinational companies. He said, well, we need someone to head the research center on China innovation. And you know something about China and you're Chinese. You've uh, done a job as head of innovation at Capgemini. So I said, okay. So I went along and did that. And I commuted from London, and I did that for five years. 
How did you manage to commute? Or, or did you have support in China? They also appointed uh, co-director Bruce McKern, an Australian professor, and I was lucky to have him because he stayed in China and we worked together on that. We traveled around the country interviewing. So we went all over the country, focused on major companies like uh, Huawei, um, the uh, telecommunications company, Hire, the uh, major appliances company, uh, Lenovo, the computer company, and uh, many others. So that's what we did. And out of that came this first book, plus various articles. When you were touring, you were, you were learning, weren't you? You weren't putting this material together in some ivory tower or, or 2,000 miles away. You were inside those businesses. Absolutely. And we even wrote, you know, a case study uh, about one of the businesses. Um, and we, we interviewed hundreds of executives, but both from Chinese companies and Western companies. So our first book was very much really from the viewpoint of Western companies, which is what should Western companies do about it? And um, so we constantly heard what the Western companies thought about conducting innovation in China, for China, as well as for the rest of the world. Total Global Strategy was, I think, published as China was opening up to, the, to world trade and, and as Western companies, as you just referred to, began to invest in the country. Now, in that book, and again, you've made reference to four of these, one of the key drivers was indeed cost. How did that drive that initial investment in China? Well, I mean, I certainly didn't invent the idea of uh, offshoring. But by the 1980s, companies were recognizing that they needed to move to lower cost manufacturing locations. And that was really the start of the idea of global strategy. Because what global strategy is about is saying, don't look at countries on a standalone basis. Don't think that you need to have the entire value chain in each country. Global strategy is about thinking about what's the best one or two or three locations for each activity. And it very quickly became clear to multinational companies, those in high labor cost industries, that they had to move their labor costs out of high cost European and North American locations and to search the world. So after the opening up of China with the reforms under the leader Deng Xiaoping from 1979 onwards, China opened up and accepted foreign investment. And it was clear that China would be a great place to put in foreign manufacturing, whether you own the factory yourself or if, like Apple, you relied on local ownership. Ironically, the, the factory that Apple uses, Foxconn, very famous, is actually owned by a Taiwanese company. So here you have a Taiwanese company building the biggest factory. Like overall, um, Foxconn has one million plus workers in China. But of course, in many other instances, these were locally owned Chinese companies. So why China rather than, say, India, for example? Well, the Chinese government was very open to foreign investment, wanted to learn from foreign investment, um, built a lot of infrastructure because it's not enough to have a factory. You've got to ship the goods out. So China has for 40 years invested now in some of the world's best transportation infrastructure. The infrastructure is an investment really by the regions. The central government gives a lot of power to the, to the regions. And by the way, one of the reasons that China took off, unlike the Soviet Union, is that 
You see, the Soviet economic system, which China had until 1978-79, was a disaster in that Marx did not believe in money, you know, because that was capitalist. So under Marx's economics, targets were in quantities, so many tons of steel, so many pairs of shoes, or, you know, the, the famous jokes, you know, so many shoes, and they make, you know, 100,000 left shoes, uh, etc. And and the simple, obvious trick under Deng Xiaoping was he eliminated physical targets and he went to financial targets. All the regional leaders, all the way down to local mayors, were given targets in growing local GDP. Doesn't matter what you make, whether it's shoes or steel, we want you to grow GDP. And they all responded to this. How did they just respond to this? Or, or was this a real shock to the system? It's a hell of a leap, isn't it? Of course, it was a shock to start with. But um, the Ch Chinese culture has always been very entrepreneurial and very money-oriented. It was merely suppressed for 30 years under Marxism and Maoist economics. And so as soon as that was released, um, you know, the energy flowed back into making money. And indeed, uh, Deng Xiaoping early on said to get rich is glorious. And so ev everybody followed this. I'm interested in these local aspects. I think it's actually key, isn't it? The local market. How did China's domestic market develop in the first years of the millennium? The idea of the markets was beginning to be very much accepted. When I taught there in the mid-90s, it was always working executives. And one executive said to me, my company is negotiating a licensing contract with a Western company. What do you think would be a fair price? for the license. I said, don't ask what is a fair price. That is Marxist thinking. Ask what price should we make to make money out of the license? That would be market thinking. So they, they, they did have to change their mindset about this. Can you describe the size of the local market? Customer relationships with technology and their, and their increasing demand for localised products? Well, the Chinese economy has grown enormously. If you look at the latest statistics, in nominal dollars, which means being the same, say, as the US economy, uh, China is now 18 trillion and the US is 23 trillion. So there are about three quarters of the US economy in nominal dollars I, without adjusting for costs. When you adjust for the lower prices in China, they are 30 trillion, what's called purchasing power parity, which makes them a quarter bigger than the USA. So now there's an enormous market. And really over the last 10 years, the government has started to move away from pushing production for export and for industrial products to encouraging consumer economy. And you know, with 1.4 billion people, that's a very big uh, consumer economy. It's not just their size that's got them where they are today, that, that security of that local consumer market. They, they very much lent on the export market at first. Yes, the export market was enormously important and that's what pulled many companies out. So like someone like higher major appliances export, uh, Huawei export and so on. But then having uh, built up scale for the export market. And as domestic consumers got richer, they were able to turn to the domestic market as well.
How have these local demands shaped innovation in these local Chinese companies? When the domestic market first started off, local companies tried to adapt Western and Japanese and Korean products for the Chinese market, which essentially meant making them simpler and cheaper. But this has actually continued for a long time to the extent now where a company like General Electric has pioneered, say, cheaper medical equipment for the Chinese market that they've then turned around and sold back to um, the uh, Western market. So developing simpler products. Originally, there was a a product that sold for $150,000. It was too expensive for the Chinese market. And then they developed a much cheaper handheld version. And now that's exported, uh, not to replace the ones in Western hospitals, but to be used in ambulances. What do you see then as the key differences between China and the West? The key difference between the West and China is that everything is done more quickly in China. It's more trial and error. Now, why did they do that? One, because the market was fast growing, the biggest mistake is not to make a mistake. So they they, they tried many things very quickly. And because the market was changing also, they were constantly innovating their way towards better and better products. Yes, that agile approach goes hand in hand in making mistakes, making them early, correcting them early. They very much follow that concept. And I think it's also related to the lower costs and the large labor pool. Designing and making a product in China is cheaper than in the West. So the cost of making a failure is much less than in the West. A Western pharmaceutical company told us that while in the West, you know, a company might just initially test out one formulation, see if that works, then another one. In China, they might test three or four all at the same time in parallel because it's lower cost and they've got more people. And actually related to that, the scientists are more willing to do somewhat boring, repetitive jobs, such as the testing. Is this part of the culture? Is this coming from a cultural difference as well as the lower cost base? The Chinese education system, as as we all know, is much more top-down, rote learning and So initially, people have been willing to do what they're told to. And that is both an advantage and a disadvantage. The the government recognizes that they need to uh, teach people to become more innovative. But at the same time, uh, the Chinese are very uh, pragmatic. I came across a wonderful example of uh, when I was in China. Two Chinese companies bought a similar packaging line from a Western company, and the packaging line broke down in both Chinese companies. And in one company, they hired a management consultant and spent $100,000 over several months to fix this. Uh, And the problem was that that the packaging line was sending out some boxes half full. It was cereal or something like that. And in the other Chinese company, instead of taking this systematic Western approach, the boss simply went to the line manager and said, Uh, I'm giving you a week to fix this, otherwise you're fired. So the poor guy thought about this and eventually came up with a very pragmatic solution. He installed a giant fan above the line, which blew any half-full boxes off the line. How have these sorts of changes 
change the way that Western companies get involved in China. So Western companies started to go to China to do one of two things, either to manufacture and to export from China, or to go in and sell directly. So after a while, some of the companies said, oh, we can also manufacture and sell in China. So once they said that, they had to do some innovation to adapt for China. So uh, in our first book, working with a, a French professor, Dominique Joly, uh, J-O-L-Y, we found that Western innovation in China went through different phases also. Can you describe these phases to us? First phase was what we call cost adaptation innovation, in which they simply innovated to adapt the Western processes, one, so they could operate in China, and two, so that they could make the products that were simpler and more suitable for the Chinese market. A second phase was market innovation, to uh, design products specifically for the Chinese market. But the perhaps the most interesting third phase is knowledge innovation, to innovate in China, not just for China, but for the rest of the world. And indeed, some high-tech companies like Microsoft and pharmaceutical companies um, really started innovating in China before they were selling in China because they were making use of Chinese scientists. Now, this is a big change, isn't it? Because when you don't know, when you look at an Apple product, you, you always feel that all the innovation was retained in California. You know, they, they make a big point in saying their products have been designed in California and they are made in China. But that's not the case. Apple doesn't even say made in China. They say assembled in China. They're really minimising. Many Western companies do indeed have real innovation in China. You know, initially for the Chinese market, but all spread out. So like we in Shanghai, we visited BMW's Innovation Center for In-Car Entertainment. Why? Because the, the Chinese need more entertainment in their cars than any other country. One, they have more traffic jams. And two, fewer rich Chinese drive the car themselves. They're sitting in the back with a chauffeur. So they want entertainment in the back seat. Does everybody appreciate that? Because that's a gargantuan shift between just producing to innovation and R&D within China. Because it's a big step. And I don't think it's talked about a great deal. No, it hasn't. That's why the subtitle of our first book, China's Next Competitive Advantage, the subtitle is From Imitation to Innovation. Let's move our discussion on to the topic of leadership. I think I've heard you say that strong leadership is a factor in China. To what extent does this mirror the cultural features like family life? China is much more boss-oriented. I can tell this from a personal anecdote. My father once said to me, son, you should never contradict me, especially when I'm wrong. So <laughs> that's somewhat the attitude uh, in China. And now, this has its disadvantages, but the advantages of being boss-oriented is that companies can move very fast. Can you take us a little deeper here? Share with us an example. And here I'll cite the uh, very famous founder and CEO of Huawei, uh, Ren Changfei, uh, who talks about the wolf culture of Huawei. So a leader in China is like the leader of a wolf pack. What does this mean? It means that different members of the pack are treated differently. 
depending on their relationship with the leader. As in a Chinese family, you know, in Western families now, the culture is that everybody's equal. You know, all the children are treated equally. Chinese culture doesn't treat the children equally. Some of them are more in favor than others, as in a wolf pack. Now, in, in business terms, this means that the leader may say, you focus on this single task for the next six months, or I'm going to send you to Africa for three years without your family. And they don't have a choice if they want to stay in the company. Now, of course, we've seen this in Western technology companies because some of the most successful companies, Apple has been dominated by a very strong leader, Steve Jobs, Microsoft, Bill Gates, Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and so on. So uh, it's just that there are more companies like that in China. And at a higher level in China, the government plays a much more important role. I think in setting strategic goals for the economy. So can you outline to us how this role works? Yes, so it starts with the five-year plan. So uh, each five-year plan states the sectors that the government wants to develop over the next five years. And interestingly, you know, the word innovation reached the top line about 10 years ago, about three plans back. Uh, and these plans are very complicated. So if you can interpret the five-year plan correctly, you can get the wind behind your sails, and then you're moving along the lines where the government is going to invest, where the regions and the uh, local municipalities are going to invest as well. Tell us more. I mean, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative is something that is a good example that cuts across the five-year plans. And it says, you know, we want to build this Belt and Road infrastructure. And um, if you as a company get behind it, you know, you'll have some government support here. Do you generally find that companies there find it relatively easy to innovate in that kind of environment? It, it doesn't always work, but um, China has clear priorities, such as robotics, you know, uh, energy, climate change, uh, and companies are responding to that. So, for example, a Chinese medical equipment company, Mydea, bought a leading German robotics company about five years ago. And for the first time, the German government, which had believed in laissez-faire economics, said, wait a minute, we don't really want to let this go. Please, a German company bid for it. But they were outbid. So the German uh, government wasn't able to stop the acquisition. Today, the EU is making more effort to block for foreign acquisitions, particularly by the Chinese. The American government is doing more, more than that. And of course, the US now has uh, CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the, in the US, something like that, which you know, reviews investments and blocks them, particularly by Chinese companies. Is blocking the only strategy open to the West? Is, is it not possible for the West, and, and I dislike this kind of oversimplification, you know, West, East and all that sort of nonsense, but are they, are they not able to go around and buy some of these innovative Chinese companies? Or does it simply not work that way? No, no, Western companies do buy Chinese companies as well, although the flow has been mostly the other way around. So um, the initial flow was Western companies doing creating joint ventures with Chinese companies, so they jointly own a third company. But in general, there haven't been, I wouldn't say there have been a lot of acquisitions of Chinese companies. It's been more the other way around. 
Well, let me ask you this. To what extent can Western business and political leaders emulate the Chinese approach? I, I think at the government level, to pay more attention to industrial policy. This was out of fashion for a long time, starting to come back into fashion in the last five years. Why doesn't it make sense for the government to invest in sectors that are critical to that country? And we see massive problems, for example, in the UK, great difficulty in investing in infrastructure. Secondly, more focus on the right kinds of education, and I'll be a bit controversial here, and certainly the Conservative government, uh, since uh, Prime Minister Cameron has emphasised this, which is put more money behind science, technology, engineering and mathematics degrees and less on uh, other degrees. It's not an accident that nearly every Chinese leader has a degree in a STEM subject. Uh, our, you know, British and American leaders are lawyers, <laughs> typically. Chinese civil servants have training in engineering and technology. That makes a huge difference. The days when you could study classics at Oxford and go and run the empire, those are gone. And yet the education system hasn't caught up with that. And what about at the company level? What does it look like? So at the company level, it's um, some of the lessons from Chinese companies are moving faster, being less tied down by process. Western companies just have so much uh, process, too much process and too much focus on individual rights of the managers rather than on the objectives of the company and what's going to work best for the company. I think now there is one other problem, which is that certainly in the Anglo-Saxon world, particularly the USA and the UK, they're somewhat trapped by the stock market. The stock market for hostile acquisitions is too powerful in the US and the UK, much less so, say, in Germany and France. And this is why um, large German multinational and large French multinational companies have been able to survive and continue to thrive because they're not so um, captured by the stock market. So there needs to be some uh, stock market reform. As early as 1979, two Harvard Business School professors wrote an article called Managing Our Way to Economic Decline and taking too short-term a focus on financial performance. And what they wrote is even more true today. And indeed, uh, at the beginning of the latest financial, uh, sorry, of, of the most recent financial crisis of 2008, Jack Welch, who pioneered the concept of maximizing shareholder value, finally said, you know, on the face of it, that's the dumbest idea ever. And so I think we need less focus on maximizing short-term shareholder value, which then leads to a role for boards. Boards of directors have to take a stronger role in protecting the long-term interests of the company. Interestingly, in Germany, the courts distinguish between the interests of the company and the interests of shareholders. Under classical economic theory in Anglo-Saxon governance, the two are assumed to be the same. They're not the same. You've explained that these Chinese consumers play an important role in community development of products. So how have Chinese companies built communities amongst their consumers and used these to shape innovation? All companies want to be 
customer-oriented, but Chinese companies are even more customer-oriented. And some of them are particularly good at this. So Xiaomi, a mobile phone company, has really created a community of users and it gets suggestions to co-design products. And it really sends out very frequent, almost weekly updates to the software or bringing out new products based on the consumer feedback. Chinese companies are now also very platform oriented. Our next article in Harvard Business Review, coming out in March 2023, talks about how the Chinese are reinventing management using platforms both to manage the company internally and to also relate to consumers, customers as well. Similarly, Hire, the major appliance company, maintains a platform to connect with customers. What's in it for the consumer? They use the platforms to access service, right, after-sales service, but they also get to contribute to the development, particularly if they are loyal customers, they want to buy the same products again. Yes, I get it. I often see examples where loyalty doesn't pay, but where, where you play a genuine part in progression, perhaps, perhaps the circle is closed. George, I'm looking forward to reading your article in, in the Harvard Business Review in March 2023. But for now, thank you for your insightful thoughts. When we think about China, many of us carry a heavy load of assumptions. We talk about the Thucydides trap as if the future of a billion people can be seen in the words of a millennium old historian and general. We project our own desires and fears, as Edward said, described in his book on Orientalism. But to learn, we must get beyond our assumptions and easy value judgments. We must speak to those who have real, personal and professional experience. We should consider their insights. China will be a supply chain partner and an economic and political rival for a long time. Professor Yip's research can help us understand the successes and challenges we all face as we find a path forward together. Many might not want to copy every aspect of Chinese society or indeed Western society, but to understand this country, like any country, we must learn, consider and base our own thinking on knowledge, not swayed by the many human cognitive biases that are so hard to work through. You've been listening to a Planet Beyond podcast. Until next time, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference.